Hello and welcome to the Weekly Defence Podcast, the show about defence procurement and military technology. We are brought to you in partnership with our sponsor Honeywell. I'm your host, Richard Thomas, Senior Editor Naval, and on the show this week, we talk about frigates as European navies look to introduce a range of new warships to replace ageing fleets. And we discuss the Super Hornet Block 2 and 3 efforts with the Director of FA-18 Development Programmes at Boeing. But first, some headlines from this week. The Royal Australian Air Force is seeking a replacement for its fleet of Hawk 127 trainer jets. A request for information on Phase 1 of Project Air 6002 has been issued, and industry responses are due by 31st of July. The US Senate Armed Services Committee has approved its markup of the Pentagon's fiscal year defence policy bill, authorising $740 billion for national defence spending. The markup matches the Trump administration's budget request, and it also includes billions for a new Pacific deterrence initiative to defend US interests in Asia against China. In Europe, the Danish armed forces are planning to acquire a new UAS capability. According to an EU-wide prior information notice, the NATO Class 1 drone weighing up to 150 kilograms would mainly be used by the Danish army to support brigade-level operations as an ISR asset. More developments on Operation Irini, and nearly three months since the operation began in the Mediterranean to enforce the UN arms embargo on Libya, the force is still significantly short of naval vessels and aircraft needed to carry out its mission. Earlier this week, EU foreign policy head Josep Borrell called for a strengthening of the mission with a request for member states to stump up more platforms. Just two, from Greece and Italy, are currently assigned to the mission following the suspension, likely temporarily, I must add, of French involvement. The plea comes as experts consider the role that NATO member Turkey is playing in supporting and arming the government of national accord in the country, with the EU facing difficult questions as to how and if it can enforce the UN embargo and whether a Libya run by the opposing General Khalifa Haftar's-led Libyan National Army might prove less appealing for the Union to deal with when the civil war ends. So to discuss this and more, I am joined by news editor Ben Vogel, Air editor Tim Martin and land reporter Flavia Camargos Pereira. Hello, everyone. Hi there. Hi, Rich. Hello. Okay, let's kick things off with some news from the electromagnetic spectrum. Ben, this week on your desk, there's a story on the Spanish company Indra and its efforts leading the European Crown Project. Go for it. Tell us more. Indeed, yeah, that's right, Richard. Uh, An interesting story from uh, Tom Withington uh, describing the Crown Initiative from the European Defence Agency. And uh, Crown is a 12-company consortium led by Indra, as you say, uh, tasked with developing a single architecture for airborne radar, electronic warfare and comms sensors. Now, this common backend would be mounted in the nose, on the fuselage, or in an underwing pod, and it would be connected to an active electronically scanned array. Um, Nothing of this kind has been done before. So if Crown leads to actual concrete deliverables, it would mean that future European military aircraft, such as the future combat air system, could include a a single scalable unit that blends all electromagnetic functions. This is very much a kind of a holy grail for the uh, electronic warfare industry and aircraft designers. Um, They've been looking for this for a while. And until now, uh, combat aircraft have required a 
a disparate range of uh, radars, EW systems and comms hardware. And these often use and detect different frequencies and they're provided by different suppliers. So obviously, the way things have been done, it adds complexity to aircraft design. Each system with its own back end that generates, transmits, receives and processes uh, RF energy. And each system with its own set of antennas taking up internal and external space on an aircraft. So in, in other words, a, a single unified electronic architecture would save uh, design and maintenance costs. Sounds um, ambitious to say the least. Any details as to the uh, development timescale? In terms of the roadmap for Crown Development, uh, Indra aims to reach a technology readiness level 7 by 2027. So in other words, a, a prototype will be demonstrated in an operational environment in the latter half of the decade. Um, the final stages, TRL-8 and TRL-9, uh, production and operational use, um, they could arrive once the single architecture is adopted for an actual aircraft programme. Whether or not that's uh, FCAS or something else uh, remains to be seen. Thanks, Ben. Uh, for our listeners, um, if you are interested in reading the full story and everything else that we discuss, you can obviously find it all on our website, shepherdmedia.com forward slash news. Moving on to some air news. Tim, you've got an FVL update involving the SB1 Defiant. Do tell. I do indeed, yeah. So Defiant is, of course, the uh, the Flara candidate, the US Army's future long-range assault aircraft, uh, which is part of the Future Vertical Lift uh, program. Uh, yeah, and Sikorsky and Boeing, because it's a, a gen, uh, joint program, of course, uh, both announced that uh, it's hit a new speed of 205 knots, uh, which interestingly has been achieved using less than 50% of the helicopter's uh, pusher prop. Now, I, I don't know an awful lot about helicopters, as, as you know, Tim, but 205 knots for a helicopter is pretty impressive. So how significant is it to reach this milestone? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suppose first off, it's it's impressive because uh, 205 knots is beyond the, the maximum speed of uh, Blackhawk, which is, of course, the, the helicopter that uh, the Defiant would potentially replace. Um, Blackhawk, you know, that uh, speed being 190 knots. Um, so also, you know, being able to fly faster is crucial to the idea um, that flying at low level um, sets a path to better avoiding uh, enemy radar detection. And the idea being that the physics of being so close to the ground and the curvature of the earth prevents radar from accurately picking up RF signals uh, from an opposing forces uh, helicopter. And so that's that, that's kind of key to all this. That's where uh, the Army wants to go. That's why they've always said we need uh, helicopters and aircraft for future vertical lift that can... Um, that can show us uh, or give us uh, faster speeds, uh, greater payloads and um, greater range. And this is kind of an, an example of this from uh, the Defiant. And, you know, as Confident builds on the program, uh, they, they just simply want to, to flag uh, that, you know, this is kind of a milestone that they're, they're quite proud of. So then what more does uh, Sikorsky and Boeing want to learn from this test program? Uh, yeah, so I suppose in simple terms, they want to fly in excess of 250 uh, knots because there's a, a number of objective and threshold objectives that the US Army have, have outlined, one of which is um, at 280 knots, which the competitor, uh, the V280 Valor, the tilt rotor from Bell, uh, has already uh, passed. And so, uh, yes, yeah, Sikorsky have a while um, to go before they, they reach that point. Um, 
But I suppose, importantly, um, the whole test program is balanced off uh, using a propulsion system test bed. And so the in terms of running through the, the, the technicalities of this, um, before before uh, new speeds are kind of ramped up with the, the prototype, um, the propulsion system test bed uh, are pretty much uh, allows uh, engineers and pilots to gather um, uh, technical data and uh, simulate uh, the flight before it happens on a prototype. So they'll incrementally build up speed. Uh, but I think probably what's most interesting in terms of the fact that uh, you know, there's a, a very compressed timeline now for uh, Skorsky and Boeing to be able to hit, uh, you know, these uh, these uh, f- f- uh, flight speeds, you know, in excess of 250 um, knots. And I suppose the, the 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 variable, the main variable that's standing in the way is that uh, that uh, they haven't managed to fully uh, generate high power from the, the pusher prop on the test stand. Um, but once that happens and the, the prop torque has been qualified, um, nothing will hold Defiant back, to, to use the words of uh, Bill Fell, who's the, the senior uh, test pilot um, for Defiant. Okay, so uh, ultimately, what does the future hold for Defiant then? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's on contract with Fowler, as I mentioned, and uh, it's part of an 18-month competitive demonstration and risk reduction phase now um, for Flara. And so either one of those two will become the next long-range US Army uh, assault aircraft uh, upon being uh, handed out uh, an award in 2022. So yeah, that's kind of the, the end target here. Nice one. Thanks, Tim. Flavia, over to yourself. You've got news from France following uh, the French MOD's annual report on arms exports. Always interesting. What are the figures? Yeah, the French has sub- the French MOD has submitted the annual report to the Parliament in early June, and the overall uh, value of arm exports from France uh, reached nine point thirty seven billion dollars in the last year. It was eight percent smaller than the two thousand eighteen total. Uh, although uh, European countries accounted for 45% of, of uh, the approved defense equipment exports in 2019, the main customers, the top five, uh, included Belgium, uh, UAE, uh, Hungary, Spain, and Australia. And uh, it shows that France uh, focused on the European market in the last year, uh, mainly because um, uh, France focused on government-to-government agreements uh, to ensure more sales, uh, to improve the sales in Europe. Uh, it includes the development of the Capacité Motorisée Terrestre, uh, that's an armored vehicle uh, that's been developed between France and Belgium uh, with the presence, with the support of the French industry. And it's interesting to to highlight that the French uh, uh, defense minister Florence Parly, she confirmed that she confirmed that um, is part of the French policy, and she also claimed that the country intends to continue uh, its export, its European export portion, the next year. So what about those sales to the Middle East and Asia? Particularly in the Middle East, there have been some notable successes in, in recent years, but maybe it's not all good news on that front, is it? Yeah, 
in in fact, Middle East and Asia, they were historical historical uh, markets for France. Um, although the export sales to the Middle East failed. Uh, fell by 47% and to Asian 6% compared to, to 2018 sales. Uh, we, can, we can point uh, out some, some reasons. Uh, for example, France, uh, in the case of the Middle East, uh, France is much tighter, much stricter uh, in terms of uh, export controls, especially related to human rights, to avoid the use of uh, uh, French armaments, French arms against uh, civilian people. And another possible reason is the fact that um, the domestic defense industry also grew uh, in in this area. We, we we saw in the last few years a, the growing strength of the domestic defense industry in the area. And I think it's interesting to highlight, um, although the, the sales to the Middle East fell, uh, this market, this area, uh, continues uh, being relevant for France and Middle Eastern culture accounted for 26% of the total exports in 2019. Yeah, very, very interesting. I mean, uh, defence export percentages often fluctuate uh, up and down as, as sort of programmes come and go, but it's, it's, it's noticeable that European countries are looking to meet the continent's needs for European defence spending, particularly with the comments made by the EDA this week. Interesting stuff. Thanks, Fabia, and thanks all. Coming up next, I chat with Defence Insight Naval Analyst Harriet Haywood to find out more about the European Navy's efforts to enhance current fleets and counter emerging threats. This episode of the Weekly Defence Podcast is brought to you in partnership with Honeywell Aerospace. With an unmatched heritage of innovation that spans more than a century, Honeywell aims to solve military customers' greatest challenges and transform the way they fly. Renewal is in the air as European navies look to introduce a range of new frigates over the coming decade in replacement of ageing fleets and, in some cases, in the face of emergent surface and subsurface threats. To name just a few examples, you have the UK introducing the Type 26 and Type 31 frigates, France bringing online the last of its FREMS and beginning the build of five FDIs, Germany's trouble build of its F-125 class, or even Italy's innovative frigate-sized PPA programme, all of which are indicative of a wider continental effort to regenerate and reorientate the cornerstone of any fleet. However, many navies will not be seeing a hull-for-hull replacement, leading to a reduction in fleet numbers. To discuss this is naval analyst Harriet Hayward. Hi, Harriet. Hello. Harriet, then, what's driving all this naval investment? As we've already said, we've got a large amount uh, of ageing platforms that are in need of replacement. So, at the moment, frigates frigates are the workhorses of the navies. Um, they account for a large portion of the fleets. Um, so many platforms going out of date and um, out of service. We, we need to they're, they're in need of replacing with much more modern and sophisticated platforms, which of course is going to lead to a reduction in the numbers with the, the rising cost of shipbuilding. What then do you think about France and UK's decision to instigate a run of smaller frigates with their respective FDI and Type 31 programs? In the UK's case. 
in particular, this is about trying to maintain fleet numbers at Yeah, you've got cost. two different programs here. Both navies are going for a complete mix of frigates. You've got two different types of platforms um, that are currently under construction, um, ongoing programs. The F, uh, the Type 31 uh, of the UK is obviously a much cheaper platform. Uh, it's gone from a modular design. Uh, it's aimed at the export market. But um, in comparison to the French um, mix of frigates, it's far cheaper. It's got uh, a unit cost of £250 million per ship in comparison to the French FDI frigates, which are a medium build, but they are still aiming for that high technology, heavily armed um, platform, which is quite a contrast to the way the UK is going. But both of them are are doing it to keep up their fleet numbers. You've got France um, reaching for to have 15 um, frontline frigates, and the UK are trying to replace their Type 23. Um, they're going to need a total of 13 frigates. But they are going for a split, still spending roughly similar amounts because the Type 26 is such a expensive platform in comparison. Okay, so realistically, most European navies are configured to defend shipping lanes and maritime choke points from actors such as Russia um, and act as part of a wider collective. Do you think the absence of uh, a military need to maintain large fleets and a reliance on multinational frameworks like NATO is driving procurement decisions? This is this, this is more the case when it comes to Germany. Obviously, they've got um, certain requirements they need to stick to on what NATO are requesting they, they need. Um, there is, of course, that weakness where they haven't had a huge blue water um, ship capable. They've got, obviously, they've got the new, their new high-end frigate platform, which is your, your MK80. Um, that's a bit different. They're not getting very many of them, but that's where they're going for that high-end side of it in comparison to bringing in your, your F-125. So I think a lot of it is NATO-led um, in those decisions, but they're still not procuring a huge amount of platforms in comparison to what well, in, in what they are needed, really. And I guess the big question of this year is how how might COVID-19 impact the programmes that are currently underway? We know there have been delays and, and problems in some shipyards, but not all. Uh, no, what's interesting is most shipyards seem to be picking up the pace again. They did always say that um, the impact would be short-term and hopefully they would then um work a lot harder to still stick to the same um delivery schedules that they had prior to um covid-19 we are there there was a slight delay with i mean the likes of the ppa ppa class you've got pincantieri was um right down in terms of production but everyone's picking back up again so at the moment we're not seeing too much maybe there's been a few ships that haven't been launched um on time but they've now been launched since and there seems to be no um, information that sh- some programs are really negatively affected at the moment. Things seem to be getting back onto track, even if it is slowly. By the end of the year, um, everywhere it, it, they are expecting to be back to production levels that they were, if not pushing for much higher production levels to make up for lost time. Whether this has an impact on um, future programs which have yet to start is something different. So obviously, they've still got to catch up on the programs they were already they were already underway. I think it's it's Greece. Um, they're more likely on their um, their export variant of the uh, FDI frigate. They're more likely to see slightly more of a delay um, than we're seeing at the moment, but only time will tell. 
I mean, we're obviously talking about shipyards a little bit more here. What 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 role does does the need to maintain a domestic defence manufacturing capability for naval warships play when it comes to the need to design and build frigates? I mean, obviously you're building them for national navies, but you also have to cater for a local industry, don't you? Yes, we have to maintain um, um, the knowledge and the infrastructure that's there to build these ships. You've got a lot of contracts, um, certainly domestic contracts where you need the knowledge within your own country, you need the infrastructure there uh, to be able to build these these platforms. Um, And if you don't have a supply of infrastructure there and shipyards there to to build these platforms... um, in the first place, then once you do have a big contract, you're going to struggle to have the workforce there capable of building these projects. So by having either, you know, exporting your platforms or by having um, maintaining your flow of procurement contracts and projects out there, then you're not only maintaining your knowledge within um, the shipbuilding industry in your own country, you're keeping um, the jobs and the workforces. We, you're avoiding the uh, shipyards going into administration, which obviously we've seen over the last year or so, yeah. um, which is important to maintain. So to have those contracts there, um, they've obviously been de- they've been developing over um, the coming years, um, ready to take over. So once you finish one contract, you can then start the next without losing too much in terms of workforce. Um, and obviously you, you keep your technology and skills in place. And how how does well how how important are exports for these shipyards? I mean, there's only a certain number of export opportunities, and many countries in say Latin America or in or in or in Africa might want to, if not now, but in the future, have their own manufacturing capabilities. So, what role will exports play for the current European frigate market? At the moment, there seems to be a fair amount of, of exports, but most of them seem to be under transfer of technology agreements. So. Um, obviously, a lot of the money there is in the design and the expertise that needs to be shared. So not only are you able to build your... I mean, if you look at the Type 26, you've got um, as most of it, you've got your own shipbuilding within your own country. Same with Canada and Australia, you've got shipbuilding uh, being undertaken in their own countries, but all the development design uh, of the export is what's funding a lot of the project. So lastly, and this is one of the most interesting ones for me, is is the definition of a frigate becoming harder to, to sort of quantify? You've, you've got programs like the Italian PPA, which will produce frigate-sized platforms, but obviously classified as offshore patrol vessels. Um, in the case of the full-variant PPA, you've got a 5,000-ton multi-role platform able to prosecute uh, across the battle space spectrum. And in, many, and in many areas, these offshore patrol vessels will be significantly more capable than, say, the UK's Type 31. So how do you classify a frigate these days? This is becoming increasingly difficult. Um, The size of frigates, the definition, it varies so much. You've got uh, a lightweight frigate, which half the time can be considered more as a corvette, or you've got your much high-end platforms, which is so similar to that of a, a destroyer. There's virtually nothing in between them. The PPA class is really interesting because it is technically an OPV, or it, it, so it is it's called anyway. But it has um, so many characteristics of a frigate. It's similar in cost to um, the frigate class it's meant to be um, complementing with the, the amount of platforms going into service. Mm. Um, it's extremely expensive um, in comparison to many much lower-end OPVs. So mm. 
it, when it's when it's talked about um, a mix of your navy um, by choosing your high-end frigates and then going for something much lower value in the UK, you have your Type 31. In France, they've gone for two different types of frigate. In Italy, not only have they gone for their, their Fremcast frigates, but then they've gone for an OPV, which which it isn't really. It's the same as France. They've gone for a, a different form of mix with the PPA class. Yeah, interesting. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks, Harriet, for coming on the Weekly Defence Podcast. Much appreciated. Thank you, Richard. Hey, have you been using the Defence Insight tool that we signed up to the other month? Have I? It's so useful. Being able to call up all those equipment entries and compare specs? I'm not sure how we got by without it. I know, right? But they've also just launched the Defense Insight Program Index, which is now live on the dashboard. Oh, I've been looking forward to that. This covers both the current and forecast requirements across all major platforms, right? It sure does. The dashboard now gives us access to really detailed program information including requirement data, total spending, contract award years, and first delivery year. This is great. It links suppliers, bidders, and the system being offered with direct links to the equipment entry pages. Yeah, and you can export all program and forecasting data. It's going to be so useful for that super urgent project the boss has me working on. Looking at wheeled armoured vehicle programmes over the next 10 years... For Defence Insight subscribers, the much-anticipated programme index is now live on your dashboard. Covering current and forecast requirements across all major systems, the programme index accounts for 80% of global defence spending. Access this latest upgrade today through Defence Insight by Shepard Media. I'm Shepard's our editor, Tim Martin, and I'm thrilled to be joined on the line by Jen Thibault, Director of FA18 Development Programmes at Boeing, to discuss Super Hornet Block 2 and Block 3 efforts. Jen, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so it's a really interesting time to be speaking to you, um, particularly with what's going on uh, for Boeing on both the Block 2 and Block 3. But I suppose it's it's, it's difficult, I suppose, to ignore uh, COVID-19 and these strange times that we're living in. Um, could you maybe give us a, a flavour of what's changed at an operational level for the FA-18 programme and uh, how you've kind of mitigated the risks uh, for those on the production line uh, and, you know, following the outbreak and, and the spread of, of COVID-19? Yeah, very relevant question and evidenced by us doing this Zoom call. We're getting very familiar with Zoom now, uh, so that's always fun. Um, yeah, and we, safety is the number one priority for our, our employees and, and keeping them secure and safe. So some, some practices have changed on the production floor with respect to COVID-19, such as face mask wearing and social distancing, and we've put a number of practices in place to protect our employees. Um, but for the most part, the production system itself has been humming along. Those people are still coming to work every single day and producing airplanes for the Navy. It's their preeminent fighter, and we know how important it is to their mission and, frankly, to global security. So we're continuing to deliver jets during this time, and we'll continue to do so even, even when we all return to the office and things someday get back to normal. Right. And uh, Jen, from a, a U.S. perspective, if you want to give us a little bit more context on that, because as I understand it, it's the Department, the Department of Homeland Security has identified the defense industry uh, as a critical infrastructure uh, sector. So that enables uh, Boeing to, uh, to pretty much 
run things as business as normal, um, as long as they are sticking to CDC uh, regulations, of course, as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the Department of Defense did come out with a memo that was published that allows us to and our supply base to continue to operate. Um, and even it's, it, now in the U.S., more businesses are coming back online, what we call non-essential businesses are coming back online. But even at the beginning of this uh, crisis, we uh, continue to operate based on that direction and um, and just trying to keep our employees as safe as possible while still supporting the mission. That's what we've been doing. Okay, and if we dig right in, straight into then the, the programs themselves, um, Block 2 is going through a service life extension program, and then Block 3, the first uh, aircraft was handed over to the U.S. Navy. And maybe you could speak uh, first about uh, Block 2, the service life extension, and what's involved from, from Boeing's perspective and the requirements. Yeah, so um, the block, we, we actually just delivered the last Block 2 Super Hornet off of our production line to the U.S. Navy la uh, last month, which was kind of a milestone event for us as we transitioned to the delivering Block 3s. Um, and you mentioned the Service Life Modification Line. That is a, a program of its own where we're bringing in some Block 1 and Block 2 jets and converting those from a 6,000-hour service life to a 10,000-hour service life. And um, we're doing that over time. We've uh, got a number of jets in flow already and have already delivered some back to the Navy. Um, it will be until 2022 to the 23 timeframe when those jets become what we call full kit, meaning that they've got the full package of modifications for a 10,000 hour service life. Um, so from now until then, there's a, a scale of service life that gets improved along the way. Um, and then not to mention, all, once we have that full kit, all the Block 2s that come into the Service Life Modification Line will come out as a Block 3. So in addition to the 78 Super Hornets that we're delivering off the production line in multi-year 4 for, for Block 3, we'll be delivering over 550 to the Navy out of the Service Life Modification Line of, of Block 3s. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to get a sense of the scale at which you're, you're working at. That's a huge number of, of aircraft um, yeah. to be responsible for, certainly. And um, so on Block 3, can you t uh, tell us a, a little bit about uh, what's happened? Because uh, as I understand it, uh, the first operational test aircraft, F-287, uh, has been delivered to uh, the Navy and they've, under they've undertaken uh, test flights uh, recently also. Yeah, so there are two Block 3 test jets, F-287 being the first one that we just flew uh, recently for the first time successfully. Uh, we will be delivering the, both of those jets to the Navy um, in the very near term here. It's imminent in any day now. Um, and the Navy will use those two jets to do carrier suitability testing, mission systems, familiar, familiarity, and checkout. Um, those test jets contain all the mission systems upgrades that come with the Block 3, but they lack the major air vehicle changes, which is the 10,000-hour service life I talked about earlier, um, provisioning for the conformal fuel tanks um, and the radar cross-section enhancements. Those are the three that will come with the fully, uh, fully operational Block 3 about this time next year. So for the next year, the Navy will have these two test jets to do um, their own familiarization and testing and carrier suitability. Okay, and in terms of how you manage that with the Navy, um, is there a discussion that you have to have in terms of um, some of the, the changes that are necessary 
and uh, within the context of COVID nineteen, and you know how, how well um, do these things have to be managed? And um, yeah, I, I'd say the the COVID nineteen impacts to this are pretty benign. I mean, they're they're I would say inconsequential at this point. But um, how much we coordinate with the Navy is frankly daily, and we have been doing all of the design and development work hand in hand with them from the very beginning. So we're confident that when we hand over these jets, they're what that it's what they want. Um, and uh, we will continue to get feedback from them as they go through the test program. And if there are any tweaks that need to be made to, um, to satisfy full mission requirements, we, you know, we, we always work hand in hand with them to do that. Okay. And in turn, the, the benefit to the Navy in terms of, of buying the Block 3 is I mean, some of the major design changes and, the, as you mentioned, the conformal uh, fuel tanks. And also one of the, the distinctive uh, design features is the, the Block 2 uh, long-range passive targeting pod and the advanced cockpit system. Can you talk about those elements and how important they'll, they'll be to pilots and our crew as time progresses? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the Block Three is is really the the preeminent fighter that's going to be on the carrier deck for decades to come for the Navy, and that means it has to be networked and survivable. And that is exactly what the Block Three brings. So, um, around the networked piece, it brings the advanced cockpit system and the advanced networking infrastructure. Those two pieces come together. Uh, to really change the way that the pilot interfaces with this airplane. And, and it changes the way information is displayed to them. It really takes all the data from the battle space, uh, allows, the, allows the Navy to crank it through this big DTPN, the Distributed Targeting Processor Network, which is basically a big adjunct computer uh, with 17 times the computing power of our current mission computer. Um, so it allows us to bring in all the data from the battle space and crank through it um, and display it to the pilots in a way on this big touchscreen large area display that they're going to have in the cockpit um, to show them knowledge. And it's all about making decision timelines faster and making the workload of the pilot um, easier and, and removing that workload from the pilot so they can focus on the things they need to focus on. Um, the other piece of the advanced networking infrastructure is the, the, the new data link. TTNT, the tar Tactical Targeting Networking Technology, I think is what that acronym is. Um, so it's basically a low, a high bandwidth, low latency data pipe that will complement Link 16 to allow um, all of that data from the battle space to be brought into the jet as well as pushed back out from the jet to the rest of the air wing. Um, so that, that networked piece is really key to the future of the carrier air wing. Okay, and I suppose as the, the U.S. Navy program, obviously they're the lead, but I suppose as it progresses, European allies will also be looking to the Block 3 uh, program and thinking about um, buying aircraft uh, also. And we've already seen Germany recently, uh, the German defence minister uh, has posed that uh, the government buys um, the, the Greiler uh, variant as, as well as uh, some Block 3s. So, I mean, that's obviously uh, good news for Boeing. Um, but would you be, I suppose, hopeful that, uh, you know, once once the aircraft matures and has been fielded operationally, um, and I know, of course, you're involved in a number of uh, campaigns, uh, you know, open competitions uh, across Europe. Um, but would that be the, the, the big idea then, I suppose, once the, 
uh, once the, the U.S. Uh, Navy, uh, you know, begin to, to operate them in, in high numbers, then then Europe can perhaps uh, an, an FMS deals might uh, happen further down the road. Yeah, we are working. You're right. Um, a number of campaigns in Germany is is in particular one we're excited about, and you know, we think the Block Three has really stirred um, more international interest and reinvigorated it in the Super Hornet. Um, so that's all goodness. And we, we're working hand in hand with the Navy on what those campaigns look like and how we best suit the needs of all these international customers and partners that, um, uh, that allow for, you know, all, all missions to be met. We think the Super Hornet is a great multi-role fighter that can meet all sorts of missions for the needs of multiple customers. So, um, the block three, I think provides even more flexibility with that uh, resetting that networked architecture that I talked about um, and allowing, you know, new applications, new software to be added um, uh, outside of normal processes and cycles. Uh, we, we've, we've added capability in that respect, too, that make it really exciting for, for partners. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I noticed you haven't so far mentioned, um, you know, the capabilities when it comes to um, arming the, the aircraft. But um, I suppose, you know, historically, and the FAA team has always been able to carry a, a wide variety of air-to-air -air and air-to-surface uh, weapons. You know, will there be any additional options that might find their way onto the Block 3? And um, having said that, I, I noticed uh, in the last uh, number of days, actually, that the U.S. Navy had uh, put out uh, a statement mentioning that they had been uh, operating with the Argum ER. And um, so certainly there does look, look to be uh, options um, for increased lethality and you know there, there's provisions here for for more uh, weapons options if necessary yeah i mean what block three really brings from that weapons perspective is this the whole networking piece that i talked about so being able to process data and also send data across the battle space um, we will continue to be aligned with the navy's weapons programs of record and the super hornet has always been a viable platform and many times the first of a platform that, that the DOD will determine that this is the one we want to integrate it in because it, it has done so many, over 400 already. Uh, so we have a long proven track history of being able to integrate, um, you know, just about anything they want to on that. And, I, and that will not change with the Block 3. In fact, um, I think it makes it an even more attractive platform uh, for more, more weapons. Okay, and uh, maybe if we just also uh, look at the potential for, might there be any potential for uh, the Navy to uh, add to uh, current requirements or, or procure more? And, and I say that um, perhaps with um, the idea that um, previously, um, you know, the, the, the partnership uh, or of buying more was, uh, some would suggest, because of the the a long time in getting the F-35 um, to progress and the difficulties with that program. And you now I understand that you might not be willing to, to, to mention that in particular, but that that is, I suppose, a, some independent sources have mentioned that or, you know, or of, of that way of, of thinking at least. Yeah, so um, there are 78 new, bu new buys in the multi-year four um, program of record. And um, we, are, we are always talking to the Navy about scenarios um, of buying more aircraft, we we of course would would like the Navy to consider that as an option as they look at their future force structure. Um, so we'll continue to provide them data um, to help support their decision making as we go forward. And um, 
and you know not only looking at what the the price of the aircraft are at acquisition costs, but also what it costs to um, operate these the operations and sustainment costs of these long term. And and so we've been working with them and sharing the data that we have with the long history of the Super Hornet to date. There's a ton of data out there that um, that would suggest that this is more Super Hornets would be a great option for the Navy. Um, you know, but it's ultimately their decision and, and we'll continue to support them with facts and data. Yeah. Okay. And I couldn't let you go, I suppose, before asking you uh, about reports about the FA-18 um, set to appear in a new uh, Top Gun uh, Maverick film. Are, are those accurate or is there anything Boeing can share with us? Any uh, exclusivity we can get on that one? <laughs> well, I, I wish I had more exclusivity on that. That's pretty awesome. Um, so there are some trailers out on YouTube, and if you if you go out and, and, and search for those, you'll find them, and uh, you will see the F-18 flying around in there, and uh, I can't wait to see it. I, I Anytime I look at it, and with the backdrops that they have on those trailers, it just gives me chills. It's, it's a, an amazing platform to work on. It performs outstanding, and you'll see it performing in an outstanding way in that movie. Uh, so we're really looking forward to seeing it as well. Yeah, I think uh, it's created quite a buzz, uh, you know, within the the, uh, the aviation community. So uh, certainly, we very much uh, look forward to it. And Jennifer, thanks so much for your for your time. Uh, and well, uh, as Super Hornet developments progress, and I'm sure we'll, we'll catch up with you in due course. Thanks again. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. This episode of the Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you in partnership with our sponsor Honeywell. As always, a big thanks to everyone who took the time in being a part of the episode. And for our listeners, make sure you like and subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and tell a friend or a colleague about the podcast. Until next week, thanks for listening.